listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, I'm Mike Gaston, and uh, this is episode number 80. 080 on February 7th, 2021. I'm behind the mic here, hunkered down, Gaston Manor, uh, on a cold Sunday morning. And it's exciting to be here today. I'm a little intimidated. I've I've got so much that I want to cover. I was tempted this week to say, let me do, let me do a midweek episode. And then I slapped myself and said, what are you thinking? You can hardly keep up with your consulting work, your videos on YouTube, and putting one of these out a week. Now you're thinking of doing two a week, a mid-show, a midweek show. So here I am Sunday. I had to cut a bunch of things out of the show. I I was going to talk about Jen Psaki and uh, Joe Biden's press secretary and her approach to uh, truthiness. I thought, ah, you know what, let me leave that to the pundits like the Ben Shapiro's of the world. I, I, there's so much to say about it, but after a while, you just you just add to the noise. I also wanted to follow up on the Wall Street bets. That, that thing is still playing out, the whole game stop, you know, the people versus the financial oligarchy. Uh, that's still happening. I, I want to reserve judgment on that. I'm a little skeptical that the people are going to pull this off, and I think, you know, we'll see where it goes. It's uh, So I've stopped following the story for a few days. I'm a little bit behind on what's going on there. But I do have three things that I want to talk about today. All three of them related. And I'm a little intimidated because it's kind of a lot to cover. There's an underlying theme. And, you know, to pull a show like this together, you do a bunch of research. I, I collect stuff throughout the week. I try to do research. I read up on things. And you try to pull these things together so that you can present them to your audience in a way that is both informative, entertaining, and hopefully I'm helping people you know, think a little bit, not that you don't think, but just think differently or maybe see things through a different lens, maybe inform you about things you weren't aware of, maybe reconsider, you know, where you're coming from or how you perceive. And I'm not, I'm not trying to push one agenda or another. I mean, I am, look, I, I'm definitely, I definitely have a worldview and there's no question there. This isn't, but this isn't like a, a Republican mouthpiece. I, I don't mind criticizing the Republicans. I don't mind criticizing, you know, a lot of different things. There are flaws in things like the free market. There are flaws in democracy. There are flaws in all these things. But but I am definitely coming from a perspective. There's no doubt there. But I just want to help people think. I really love intellectual honesty. And the reason I love that is because I'm hungry for the truth. I want the truth. And I think we all want the truth. And so I want to open today's show with the first story. And that is this article that was published, I want to say February 2nd, in the New York Times. And and that is the uh, article about how the Biden administration can help solve our reality crisis. That's the title of the article in the New York Times came out February 2nd, how the Biden administration can help solve our reality crisis. This is written by a guy named Kevin Ruse. It's R-O-O-S-E. Now maybe it's Rose, but it's Ruse. I think Kevin Ruse would be perfect. Because this guy, this article is such a pile of crap. His, his, let me, let me baseline it for you. His recommendation, and maybe you've heard about this, his recommendation after talking to the experts is that the Biden administration should set up a reality or truth czar. And it's so funny because he goes, look, uh, and I'll quote it for you. When he says, several experts I spoke with recommended that the Biden administration put together a cross-agency task force to tackle disinformation and domestic extremism, which would be led by something like a, quote, reality czar. Then he says, it sounds a little dystopian, I'll grant, but let's hear them out. (laughs) I mean, can you give me a break? Now, it wouldn't be bad. Honestly, it wouldn't be bad to float. You know, look, we got to wrestle with ideas in the public square. There's nothing wrong with putting an idea on the table and wrestling it out and figuring it out and debating it and being rigorous because as a society, we become better for it and we make better decisions. But I would, I would posit, I would put out there, I would say, take a look at the last 15 years, how we do things. I mean, I think of the Obama administration, his eight years, did we really get a chance to debate things? Do we really get a chance to have a national conversation? Heck no. I mean, if he wanted it, it was happening. It was either happening by executive order, it was either going to happen by browbeating and bully pulpiting, or it was going to happen just by, uh, you know, congressional fiat, uh, a.k.a. uh, the Affordable Care Act. I I mean, it was just like a thousand-page document. You don't get to the infamous, infamous, I think it was Pelosi, you you know, you, you you have to approve it. You have to vote on it. 
to know what's in it. Cause a thousand pages and they're like, look, you're dropping this thing on us. We need time to process it. You know, the opposition is saying, I need time to process this so we can have uh, a meaningful retort. I want to critique it. And that's what they're supposed to do. If you're opposition and you know, Hey, look, when Trump was in office, the opposition took themselves very seriously. That's fine. They were, you know, they were horrible to Trump. They were horrible to Trump supporters. I remember uh, Maxine Waters out there in some public, you know, there's a video of this. You can watch it. I've seen it a hundred times of her advocating, you know, we got to hunt these people down. If you see them in a restaurant, you got to badger them, form a crowd, make noise, chase them. We're going to just, we're going to push these people off the public square. We're not going to let them enjoy their lives these right-leaning, terrible people. Who is she talking about? Skinheads? No. She's just talking about people in office, Republicans. Anyone that's vocal about the right uh, needs to be badgered by the population. That's coming from Maxine Waters. You might go, wow, she's kind of crazy. Well, hey, she's she's a congressperson, congresswoman. I mean, give me a break. This is somebody who's been given the responsibility of representing the people of America, and she's advocating for publicly badgering and harassing anyone that espouses political views that are in opposition to hers, but they were the opposition. So we'll give them that. The Schumers, the the Nadlers, the, you know, all these people. The, um, who's the guy that did a little bang, bang with Fang Fang? Oh, uh, Swalwell, Eric Swalwell. So all these guys, okay, they're coming out, they're opposition. That's what happens. So we put ideas out there and the opposition gets to fight them. Well, the Obamacare, that never happened. This has become the norm. We don't, we don't want public discourse. We don't want to argue ideas. And the, and the left, specifically progressives, will often use the courts to put in place their policies. It's very rare that the left will go through a legislative process because they know the American people often aren't ready uh, for what they, what they advocate for. I give you um, a number of things. I, I give you Roe versus Wade. That was not decided by vote. That didn't go through the House, the legislation. This wasn't a um, proposal that became a bill eventually. This isn't an amendment. This, it was judicial fiat. It was decided in the courts. So what you get is you get judges that get to decide cases, and then you and I have to live by those laws. So Roe v. Wade gives us abortion. That that didn't go through the typical lawmaking process that we all learn about in our fifth grade civics class. It just went through the courts. Um, equal opportunity, uh, you, you know, um, some of the racism and employment stuff. I mean, all this stuff. It goes through the courts. It doesn't go through the normal lawmaking system. Now, you might go, well, Mike, a lot of these are good things. We needed to do those. That's fine. But why not have the public discourse? Why not have the public discourse? So the problem I have is, I, you know, get back to this article. This, um, I grant, it sounds a little dystopian, but uh, let's hear them out. Okay, you know, let's hear them out. But the problem is that that's not how things work. In this article, he's promoting some ideas from some quote-unquote experts. This isn't necessarily going to be treated the same way if it becomes embraced by those in power right now. It'll be rammed down our throats. There'll be no public discourse. It'll just become a thing. And my concern is, just with czars in general, if you look historically on the right and the left, they don't do so well. The drug czars gave us a lot of the CIA-funded terrorism and destabilization of governments south of us and in Central South America, uh, education czar, that didn't end so well. Like you get these czars, these kind of kingpins with big budgets and not a lot of oversight that get to prosecute these quote unquote wars, the war on terrorism, the war on drugs, you know, the war, it's like the, who, who elected these people? Who elects a reality czar? Who elects a truth czar? Which really gets at the question, who decides what the truth is? Now, if you were to read this article and, and this Brian Ruse was fair, like if he was saying, hey, look, we've got a problem in our society, like something's broken, we've got to find a way to fix it. And, and that something is that across the board, American people are being lied to or whatever. That's fine. But the whole article, the whole thing, what a surprise coming from the New York Times, by the way, focuses solely on the right. There, there are, doesn't seem to be any... Uh, misinformation on the left. There doesn't seem to be any uh, lying on the left. There doesn't seem to be anything on the left. It's all on the right. He's very concerned 
about QAnon. Fair enough. QAnon is a cancer. I'll give him that. He's very concerned about QAnon and the impact that's having on people. He's very concerned that that a number of people, and I'll I'll read this um, paragraph, but a number of people actually believe that Donald Trump legitimately won the election. Oh my God, we've got to do something about it. How How could people actually believe that? Or that a number of people uh, also believe that COVID-19 was manufactured in a Chinese lab. How could anyone believe that? We've got to do something. Let me read this paragraph. Hoaxes, lies, and collective delusions aren't new, but the extent to which millions of Americans have embraced them may be. 30% of Republicans have a favorable view of QAnon, according to a recent YouGov poll. According to other polls, more than 70% of Republicans believe Mr. Trump legitimately won the election. And 40% of Americans, including plenty of Democrats, believe the baseless theory that COVID-19 was manufactured in a Chinese lab. That paragraph right there tells you the mindset of this guy. When you start saying things like the baseless theory, forget let's forget the political stuff. I mean, I could go on and on about you got 70% of, of one of two parties thinking that the election was rigged. I think you've got a deeper question. I don't think it's a matter of delusion. I think when 70% believe something, something else is going on here. Let's put that stuff aside. The fact that he says 40% of Americans believe the baseless theory, baseless theory right there. That's the phrase, baseless theory that COVID-19 was manufactured in a Chinese lab. That tells you everything you need to know about Kevin Ruse and his his position on all this stuff. He doesn't give a crap about anything that questions authority. He wants to hear from the experts. He wants to live by the experts. He wants to go with the approved narrative. This is not a journalist. He works for the New York Times, but he's not a journalist. This isn't somebody going deep trying to get to the facts. He's not trying to uncover the truth. This is not somebody concerned with the truth. He's advocating for a truth czar. But when you start saying things like baseless theory that COVID-19 was manufactured in a Chinese lab, well, what is the, what is the based theory? <laughs> My goal in life is to be a based God. <laughs> what's the based theory? What's the theory that's right? Uh, what's the theory that has, that has basis in fact and, and re- reason and logic? That, that COVID-19 came from some bat in a Chinese, in a Wuhan wet market? A bat, by the way, that supposedly is like hundreds of, that doesn't even live, it's like, it's natural habitat, it's like 500 miles away, supposedly, I don't know. What's easier to believe that the the moment that the virus hit our shores, we were immediately told that, oh my God, it came out of a wet market. How do they know that? Have you seen some of these third world country wet markets and just normal markets? Forget the wet market. I mean, the wet market is almost like this third world, it's, they're disgusting, they're, it's filthy, it's just bizarre, it's bizarre. You go to go to like big cities with these kinds of populations, and the, the the animals that they've got hanging in the window that you can eat are just mind-boggling. Things that a Westerner would never put in their mouth, let alone touch. <laughs> but, but what's easier to believe that they somehow knew so quickly that oh, it was it came from a wet market, or that it came out of a lab? By the way, there is a virology lab, there is a research laboratory in Wuhan that has been playing with viruses. So which one's easier to believe? Why is it baseless to believe that something got out of that very specific facility whose sole purpose is to do this kind of research? Now, I can say, hey, look, it's baseless to accuse the Chinese of doing it on purpose. We can't, I I can't know that. But to sit and and use Occam's razor and go, well, the most simple, obvious answer is is the right one. Like the, the least complicated answer is the right one. Why would, I, why would I believe a convoluted story that I don't even know how anybody would find out? I mean, what kind of sleuthing work? What kind of Sherlock Holmes was able to figure out that some dirty little wet market and it was a bat? Like, where did they come up with that? That sounds to me like fiction. You have to suspend disbelief to, to believe that they could even figure that out. Versus saying, well, hey, how about this thing right down the street here, this virology lab? It's very possible that that thing just got out, even if it wasn't malicious. It was like they're working on it. And even if their work wasn't malicious, they will often play with viruses, they being scientists that are allowed to do this. Some countries, you can't do it. That's why America invests in labs like the Wuhan 
Chinese that we partner with it because we're not allowed to do it here, but they'll often inject things or modify these things to make them stronger to figure out how do we beat them or what do they behave like? You experiment with these things. Do I think it's moral, ethical, or smart? No, but it happens. So to believe that they were playing with this thing, even just not, not for militarized weaponry or anything, just to understand how to eliminate viruses. I mean, sometimes doctors like, I just want to do this because I'm curious or, or research or scientists. So it doesn't, I, I don't think you have to believe anything nefarious. You can just believe in human incompetence. And you can also believe in the power of life to always get out. I don't think that it's baseless. I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but I want to I want to highlight how loaded the language is in this article. And to call it baseless, I think right there, you know, shows your hand. It betrays your position and your thinking. And by the way, that recent 40 percent of Americans, including plenty of Democrats, believe it's baseless. That's the only time he includes Democrats. He never includes them in anything else. And throughout this whole Peace. He just talks about right-wing conspiracies, the deadly capital riot, all these things that are huge problems, and it's getting worse. We've got to do something. And then he says, well, I've talked to experts. You know, I've talked to these various people, and they're saying, wow, we've got a real problem. We've got to do something here. These people are deluded. They're, and they're you know, domestic. They're creating domestic terrorists. And like it's going to be the country's out of control. We've got to deal with these lies. We need to do something. And this is where they come up with this reality czar. You go through the article, he talks about a bunch of stuff, and I'm going to read another paragraph to you. <laughs> this is just, uh, several experts I spoke with recommended that the Biden administration put together a cross-agency task force to tackle disinformation and domestic extremism, not terrorism, extremism, which would be led by something like a, quote, reality czar. And then he goes on to say, it sounds a little dystopian, I'll grant, but he let's hear them out. This guy, who's deluded? Who's deluded? Now, again, I said, I don't mind putting things on the table. We can argue them and go back and forth. We can have the rigor of, uh, of conversation and so on. But like, who, who's the extremist here? <laughs> so anyway, some of the ideas they come up with, you know, first of all, they want, uh, they recommend that, that we start working on things like the algorithms. We've got this social media. We need to make the algorithms from Twitter, Facebook, Google, we need to make them transparent, but not to everybody necessarily. We must, and he's quoting here, uh, one of these experts, uh, Dr. Donovan, she said, we must open the hood on social media so that civil rights lawyers and real watchdog organizations can investigate human rights abuses enabled or amplified by technology, Dr. Donovan said. And then he goes on, there, there was a bill uh, last year by two House Democrats uh, representatives Anna G. Eshu of California and Tom Melanowski of New Jersey that could help contain some of the damage. Uh, so it, let me just read. The Protecting Americans from Dangerous Algorithms Act would amend Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and both the Republicans and Democrats are going after this Section 230 in different ways, to remove large tech platforms' legal immunity for violent or violence inciting content that their feed ranking and recommendation systems amplified while preserving their immunity from other user-generated content. Now I want to just talk for one real quick second. What they're essentially saying is we need to give, we need to give civil rights lawyers and real, that's the word, real watchdog organizations access to these algorithms, these lawyers and watchdog groups, real ones, by the way, not those fake watchdog groups, they need to have access to the algorithms to avoid violence. And you're saying, well, how does some tweet on, on Twitter, what is, it's just free speech, but you got to understand something about the left, especially the progressive slash postmodern left. They believe in this idea that speech is violence, that speech is violence, that when you say something that is you know, not what they want to hear. It's violence. And so you're going to give civil liberty attorneys and watchdog groups the power to get under the hood to see how these algorithms are working. Well, do you think if you've got a truth czar and these people are answering or somehow connected to a truth and reality czar, that if you say something on Twitter that is, that is 
somehow conceived as violence, that your speech becomes violence because this is, and I don't have the time to go into all that, but that is a platform. You've, you've heard it before. The social justice warriors screaming that speech is violence. You think giving the federal government under a truth czar with billions of dollars in that person's pocket and looking at the Biden administration, the kinds of people that he's putting in place, the Buddha judges and the Levines of the world, people that have uh, a quite frankly warped view of reality. You think putting someone like that in the position as a truth and realities are, and now you say something that runs afoul, you've committed violence, the power of the federal government to come down on you because it's akin to what happened on the Capitol on the 6th. Oh my gosh, this is terrorism. This is extremism. We've got to stomp it out. We've got to root it out. You, my friend, you, you tweet the wrong thing. You Facebook the wrong thing. You, you write a blog post about the wrong thing. You put a podcast out about the wrong thing. You say the wrong thing. You've committed violence. And the truths are will be empowered to come after you. So that's one thing. The next thing that they're saying is we need to enact social stimulus uh, to fix people's problems because the problem is they're spending too much time uh, on their computers reading all this. So what we need to do is a public safety issue, uh, but it's also a public health issue. And the thing, and, and so what they're recommending is that we have countermeasures. Uh, we need some kind of social stimulus. This um, Micah Clark, uh, director at Moonshot CBE, a counter extremism firm in London. This is just what we, we need is more, more input from uh, the fine, the fine folks that gave us the da steel dossier, not moonshot CVE didn't. Why are we looking to London for, for advice? But anyway, Mike, Michael Clark said, um, he suggested one effective countermeasure could be a kind of social stimulus, a series of federal programs to encourage people to get off their screens and into community-based activities that could keep them engaged and occupied. Oh my gosh. Encouraging offline gatherings. I'm, I'm thinking let's, let's, ha you, you know, Mr. Gaston, you have to report to your weekly uh, therapy group that's going to talk about uh, better social behavior and better treatment of those that you you find threatening. <laughs> yeah, uh, there in, there are inventions that seem to work on a smaller scale too. A series like a series of quote de-escalation ads that Moonshot ran on Google and Twitter targeting high risk potential violent extremists extremists with empathetic messages about mental health and mindfulness. I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. Federally funded. We should do that. Federally funded propaganda. I've never heard of that before. Um, I'm wondering like, if it could be some type of, you know, truth ministry. I, I'm thinking George Orwell. I'm thinking, you know, I have to go Orwell. Let's just go with uh, Orwell's, you know, he wrote fiction. Uh, Mrs. Gaston right now is reading Animal Farm. And uh, she's like, did you ever read that? I'm like, yeah, I had to read that in uh, late grade school, early high school. I can't remember. I think maybe middle school I read that. Uh, of course, then you've got 1984 by Orwell, which is really, um, I think, what you know, you, you think of when you think of these truth ministries. But let's not go to fiction. Let's not go to somebody, you know, some writer, a, a British writer, I'll give you, um, saying, hey, being prophetic and saying we need to be careful. Let's just look at Nazi Germany. Well, they had a truth ministry. They had a ministry of propaganda. How'd that go? Do we ever want to empower our government? Do we ever want to tell the government it's okay to manipulate us, to try to message us? I mean, they do it already, but do we really want to codify this? We want to make it official. We want to empower it and empower it and give it all kinds of our money so that it can so they can propagandize against us. And what 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 is this, what are these people thinking? But again, they're not. They're not thinking. They're more interested in controlling your behavior than setting up a society that allows people to live free and to live on their own terms. Yeah, QAnon's a problem. Okay, do we really need President Biden to initiate? The guy who signed, uh, I don't know, was it 40 or 60 executive orders? Like the guy has no clue. He, there's no way he can know everything he's signing. I'm sorry. It, he doesn't have it. He can't know. He's just signing this stuff. They're just throwing stuff in front of him. He's signing an unprecedented number of executive orders in such a short amount of time. Quite frankly, signing 10 would be unprecedented. Did you know that? 10. I think Obama did five. Uh, Bush did one or two. Trump, I think on his first day, I think he did one. Was it the Paris Accord? I can't remember which one. Very small. This, we're talking, you can count them on one hand, presidents over the last handful of years. Biden gets in there. This is beyond unprecedented. It is unprecedented, but it just, it's outrageous the amount of executive orders 
For what? And a lot of this wasn't just to undo, oh, well, we got to undo what Trump did. Really? Well, what specific programs? Okay, you've got a problem with the wall. You want to stop that. Okay. You want to get back in the Paris Accord. There's two. What other big, I mean, what other big things did Trump do that you've got to sign into executive orders immediately? And by the way, Trump's executive order on the Paris Accord, uh, that wasn't, <laughs> that, that wasn't, he was undoing an Obama executive order. And these guys don't go through the judicial system. They use executive orders. They don't put it before the American people. They use their authority to do what they want to do. These executive orders are bad news. You know, Trump's executive order on the Paris Agreement was to get us out of it, not to handcuff us, to free us. His executive order on the DACA situation was not to penalize or punish those born here uh, without citizenship. It was to say, look, we can't fix this by executive order. It has to go before the American people. Congress has to fix this. It's Congress's job. It's their job to fix it. His executive order was to undo the things that Obama did. Obama put a Band-Aid on it. He just said, by executive order, I'm going to make it go away. Well, that doesn't fix the deeper issue that we have as a nation. But the, you know, the climate was just so charged. They just were never going to deal with it. And um, I don't want to get into defending Trump on this. I'm just saying like this, this narrative is just so skewed. And so this Kevin Rose or Ruse, his, his proposal is that we put a truth and reality minister in place, a czar, that can save the American people from lies. And my concern with that is it's just so cockamamie. It's so crazy. It, it's so destructive. This, this is like you'd be opening Pandora's box. What happens when all content in a country that's supposedly founded on free speech, supposedly, that the, that the left used to embrace, at least the Democrats did, the, the, the classical liberals, people that wanted free markets and private property, they advocated for free speech. In a country founded on those ideas, you're going to put somebody that's a truth czar in charge? What happens now to somebody with their little YouTube channel or big YouTube channel? What happens with a news network that wants to come out? What happens for publications and magazines? What happens when you're speaking to your children at the dinner table and you run afoul of what the realities are and the truths are has said is approved truth? I don't think that the government needs to be in the place, in the position to decide what's true and what's not true. And folks, this is what happens when you destroy your institutions, when you destroy the family, when you destroy religion, when you destroy education, when you desecrate these things, you destroy them and you try to rebuild them in some progressive remash that is totally not the thing. When you, when you destroy these institutions, then yeah, you, you struggle with truth. It used to be that you could look to your parents for the truth. This is how our family behaves. This is what we know to be true. This is what we believe. This is how we do. Oh, you went to church. Well, this is what you're taught is the truth. You go to synagogue. You learn the truth. You live your life by these truths. We're in the progressive era where we're in this postmodern world, this, this irrationalist world. Thank you, Immanuel Kant and your philosophical offspring, where nothing is true anymore. There is no truth. You can't know truth. It's all subjective. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. Well, now we're going to say to the government, you decide the truth for us. When you strip all these other mediating institutions out, when you destroy them, weaken them, you even mock them to the point where people eschew them. Families are falling apart. People don't go to church or synagogue or mosque as much as they used to. We're in this world where people just don't look to those institutions and those institutions have become quite weakened and we're responsible for that. We are the ones that break up our own families. We are the ones that put ourselves first, destroy our own families. We are the ones that, that want the church to tell us some bullshit self-help message, some theistic self-help message. We want to hear how I'm so important. We want to hear about how I can be happy. We want to hear about how I can be successful. We want to hear about how I can fall asleep at night feeling good about myself. We don't want to hear about pick up your cross. We don't want to hear about die to yourself. We don't want to hear about lay your life down. No greater love does a man have than this, that he lays his life down on behalf of his brothers. 
That's a quote. That's Jesus Christ from the Gospels. We don't want to hear that because we're the king. We're the God. And so when we destroy these institutions and we weaken them, then we can't look to them for truth. Well, what do we do? Well, now the government's going to fix it. I just, I, I, you know, it'd be one thing if it was just some stupid blogger. It'd be another thing, you know, some knucklehead, you know, Antifa's out there saying they're demanding a, a truth czar, you know, that kind of thing. It, it's when it's, it's the, you know, is it the gray lady, the New York Times? And look, we all know it's a leftist progressive rag, but it's a highly respected organ. I mean, the New York Times, highly respected. To put something out like that is just so reckless. It's so, it's so reckless, but they don't care. It's what they want. They're not looking for free speech. They're looking for a world where they can control the narrative and they can tell you how you can think, act, and believe, say. That's totalitarianism, kids. When you put a truth czar in there because you're so upset that somebody else believes in QAnon, that you put a truth czar in there, then my friends, you are the problem. It's not QAnon. It's not those stupid Republicans. It's you. If you think that's what we need to fix this country, it's you. The real problem and the reason that things like QAnon do so well is because people do not have faith in the institutions anymore and the people at the head of these institutions. So it's easy to believe. Donald Trump is a manifestation of that. He's not the problem. He's a manifestation of the people saying, I don't believe anymore. I don't believe in the system. I don't trust the system. I want a system wrecker. I want a system destroyer. I don't trust the system anymore. Well, you want to go a step further. Let's get into our second story. I won't go too far into this, but I want to mention the story that came out uh, just the other day, Time Magazine published the following article on February 4th, The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign that Saved the 2020 Election. All right, so we're talking about truth. We need a truth czar. You've been hearing 70% of Republicans believe that Donald Trump actually won the election, that it was somehow uh, stolen from him, that there was all kinds of voter fraud, wide-scale, deep, massive voter fraud. And you've got the New York Times command saying, we need a truth czar because these knucklehead Republicans, these right-wing conspiracy theorists, they're a cancer. They're going to destroy the world. we got to stop these guys. We need somebody. We need to, to empower the government to fight back this, this group of people that don't get reality, these baseless claims. And then you get two days later, Time Magazine the secret history of the shadow campaign that saved the 2020 election. We're talking about an election in a democracy. We talk about transparency, open and fair elections. Your vote counts, et cetera, et cetera. The secret history of the shadow campaign? Doesn't that, does that send a red flag up for anybody? Now, the funny thing about this, this article written by Molly Ball on February 4th, you can look it up on Time Magazine, it positions this whole thing like a victory lap. It's so it's tone deaf. It's like they're they're celebrating this work that happened behind the scenes by very high powered people, lots of money, lots of organizations from grassroots uh, protest groups that were ready to burn cities down if things didn't go their way, all the way up to very powerful, high level, former Obama level Obama administration operators involved in secret groups with secret funding, et cetera. I mean, it's really crazy. Now, the thing is, if you read this, if you just come into this again with a narrative like, oh, Trump bad, orange man bad, right-wing people bad, uh, government good, Joe Biden good, oh, f uh, progressivism, future world good, good, good. If you read this article, then you're excited about it. You're excited. This is like this article is written, it almost, it's almost clueless that anyone could think differently. It's clueless to the fact that, that people don't all see the world the same way. It's clueless to the fact that there were irregularities. It just ignores all that. And so when you look at this article, it's mind-blowing. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I encourage you to read it. It's a long article. It's a long article. But, but here's some, I'm just going to pull some quotes out of it. So it's, it's letting you know what happened behind the scenes. We got to tell you the story. It's such an amazing story. So quote, here's, it's talking about this group working really hard. Their work touched every aspect of the election. 
They got states to change voting systems and laws and help secure hundreds of millions in public and private funding. They fended off voter suppression lawsuits, recruited armies of poll workers, and got millions of people to vote by mail for the first time. They successfully pressured social media companies to take a harder line against disinformation and use data-driven strategies to fight viral smears. And it just goes on and on and on, all the things they did. And, and, and here again, here's the, here's the bias of this. For Trump and his allies were running their own campaign to spoil the election. The president spent months insisting that mail ballots were a Democratic plot and the election would be, quote, rigged. His henchmen, see, not his team, his henchmen. Again, the bias is just so obvious. His henchmen at the state level sought to block their use while his lawyers brought in dozens of spurious suits, not legitimate suits, not, not fighting his, you know, pleading his case, spurious suits to make it more difficult to vote and intensification of the GOP's legacy of suppressive tactics. What legacy of suppressive tactics? Just like the Democrats' legacy of, you know, millions of dead people voting? I, I, what legacies are we... Each party has a legacy of, of shenanigans when it comes to elections. This is so biased. Before the election, Trump plotted to block a legitimate vote count. And he spent months the following November 3rd trying to steal the election he'd lost with lawsuits. It, it just goes on and on and on. It's, it's quite crazy. At, at one point, it even says, um, I, I've, I've highlighted a bunch of things here. It goes on. Oh, here it is. All right. Uh, let me just read this. Hundreds of major business leaders, many of whom had backed Trump's candidacy and supported his policies, called on him to concede. To the president, something felt amiss. Quote, it was all very, very strange, Trump said on December 2nd. Within days after the election, we witnessed an orchestrated effort to anoint the winner, even while many key states were still being counted. This is Trump. Now, the, the writer, this, this Molly whatever, she says, in a way, Trump was right. And then she goes on. She says, there was a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes, one that both curtailed the protests and coordinated the resistance from CEOs. So, so they're admitting, like, Trump's out there going, something's wrong. And of course, when he said that, the media and everybody else went haywire, like, he's trying to subvert, he's, you know, and she's saying, actually, he was right. There was something going on. There was a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes. Does it strike anybody strange that the secret history, shadow campaign, conspiracy, uh, these kinds of, this language, and it's all positioned as something good? It's just so crazy. Uh, I'll, I'll go on just a little bit more here. This is in the inside story. And this is her kind of telling you what you're about to read. It's a long article. I'm not going to go through all of it. This is the inside story of the conspiracy to save the 2020 election based on access to the group's inner workings, never before seen documents and interviews with dozens of those involved from across the political spectrum. It is the story of an unprecedented creative and determined campaign whose success also reveals how close the nation came to disaster. It's just, it's like, it's just really discouraging. <laughs> and what's discouraging about it is um, how obvious it is. Uh, one more quote. That's why the participants want the secret history of the 2020 election told, even though it sounds like a paranoid fever dream. A well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information. They were not rigging the election, they were fortifying it. And they believe the public needs to understand the system's fragility in order to ensure that democracy in America endures. Folks, this is mind-blowing. Now, we talked about, we talked about just a moment ago, this call for the truth czar, the truth and reality czar. Then I'm reading just clips and I'm not, look, I'm adding the sarcasm. You can hear it in my voice, but I'm not being so choosy. Like I'm not having a dig. This, this article is full of these kinds of quotes. And then it goes on to highlight the people. Oh, the architect, this Mike uh, Pod, Podhorzer, you know, he kind of led it. He, he was a senior advisor to the president of the AFL-CIO, um, big union federation, I think the largest he also um, is the wizard behind some of the biggest advances in political technology, according to the article. 
he's a, he's uh, led. He's one of the guys that helped create the Analyst Institute, a secretive firm quote that applies scientific methods to political campaigns. Uh, it just goes on and on. I mean, just like this is the kind of stuff, and we're, and we're supposed to get excited about this. This is a this is a victory lap, by the way. This is not a. Um, this isn't tone deaf on purpose. It is tone deaf, uh, but it's just a victory lap. It's like if you're if you're in the bag for the left, if you're in the bag for bigger government, if you're in the bag for socialism and totalitarianism, and you know they're calling it protecting democracy. Well, hey kids, don't get confused. All the big communist countries, it's always the people's republic of. It's the people's republic. It's the people's democracy. We're protecting this for the people. But it's a totalitarian effort. This is just explaining to you how totalitarian entities control elections. I highly recommend you read it. It's just stunning. Like I kept saying, I kept saying, oh, one more quote, no more. Here's a quote. Private philanthropy stepped into the breach. This is deeper into the article. An assortment of foundations contributed tens of millions in election administration funding. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative chipped in 300 million. So first of all, and it doesn't it doesn't even say what the Chan Zuckerberg uh, initiative is. I mean, come on, Chan Zuckerberg, uh, that, that's Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, isn't it? I, I don't know. Call me an idiot. Maybe there must be some other Zuckerberg I don't know about. So it says private philanthropy stepped in and a, an assortment contributed tens of millions. Oh, they, they just give, you know, they just give a handful, tens of millions. Chan Zuckerberg alone gave 300 million, 300 million from one group. So they're they're bragging about this, celebrating it. If we have to resort to secret cabals and shadow campaigns to save elections, my friends, again, we have a deeper issue. And if you think, as you read this, if you think this is a good thing, Trump was so bad, we had to do whatever it takes to get rid of him, you're actually worse than Trump. You're actually worse than Trump. You know, this article in the previous one talks about Trump being this autocratic dictator. Based on what? Based on what? What is it that makes you think Trump was an autocratic dictator? I have a lot to criticize about what happened on January 6th. I lay a lot of that at Trump's feet. I think it was irresponsible and stupid. I would think it was terrible leadership. And half my listeners are like mad at me for saying that because if you're a Trump fan, I get it. I get it. Look, I, I think Trump did a lot of great things as president. I think he had a lot of unfair resistance. So I'm critical of Trump, and I also recognize a lot of great things he did. I'm trying to be intellectually honest here. But to sit and say he was autocratic, and here's the thing. Like Mussolini, Benito Mussolini, he had lots of writings about fascism before he became the head of the uh, the fascist party, before he took over Italy, before he was a dictator, okay? He had writings that were out there. In fact, a lot of American intellectuals, including Woodrow Wilson, thought he was a genius. They loved his writings. This idea of fascism was kind of new, this orienting your society around a more more militaristic style structure. You know, the Great New Deal, these big work crews that went out and did all these public works and what that was fascism. America had its own kind of soft fascism phase under Wilson and even FDR. Yeah, that's right, kids. We were fascistic under the Democrats. What a surprise. So it was an ideology that was new and people loved it. And then they found out later, okay, bad, fascism, bad. We don't want fascism. But he had all kinds of publications and writings. He was giving talks and speeches. He was documented as sharing his ideas. He was an ideologue and he was an authoritarian because he wanted to integrate and institute and, and ensure that his ideology played out in, a, in Italy, in the Italian society. He took over. Uh, same thing for Hitler. Old Adolf, he wrote Mein Kampf. It was his ideology. It was his philosophy in a book. You could read it and you could understand his mind and what motivated him. Uh, Barack Obama, he had a couple books out there. There's not a bad, you know, Dreams of My Father. And there was another one. I think there were two books out there. But these leaders, they put their ideas out there uh, before they become who they become. And you kind of know, oh, oh, this guy, like Obama, you knew with Bill Ayers, Bill Ayers was his mentor. Well, Bill Ayers was the weather underground and Obama was a community organizer. You could pretty much say this was a leftist progressive. Okay. Shock. What a shocker. 
Who, who could have ever guessed that Obama was a leftist progressive? Well, you just look at his writings, you look at his behaviors and the things that he espoused and aligned himself with, and you understand his political leanings. So for them to say on day one, the minute Trump got the nomination, forget being elected, just the Republican nomination, until, and they haven't stopped yet, until, who knows when, until, he's, until they kill him or put him away in prison, some space prison that cannot be, you know, they're going to put him in some force field and fly him out to space. And then a thousand years from now, someone will unlock the key and the, and the scary monster will be released. It'll be a great movie. They are, in, they're insisting this guy's an authoritarian. He's a racist. He's a sexist and so on. A sexist, I think you can, <laughs> I think that one sticks. But when you look, well, I'm saying, well, what are you basing this on? his writings, uh, the, the books, uh, what, what is it about him that you're so sure you know what he is? I just, I'm just a little skeptical when you, before the guy even puts his pants on his first day being president, you're already screaming about what an authoritarian he is and what a dictator he, he's going to be. And he's never going to leave office and we're going to have to get the military. They were saying this on the first few days, we're going to have to get the military and to get rid of them. They were protesting in the streets. There were riots and so on. Why? Because he's such a horrible person. How did you know? Yeah, he's crass. He's crude. Yeah, he's, he's a bully. I get all that. His Twitter was very mean. <laughs> it's just... Mind-blowing. I feel like I'm being a Trump apologist. It's not my goal here. It's not what I want to talk about. But it's just like these articles are so slanted and there's just such an assumption. Oh, these are the facts. But, but there's no research. There's no, it's like, how do you come up with that? How do you come up with that? I just don't get it. So for me, the smoking gun is that, that, that paragraph. It's like, this is why the participants want the secret history told. You know, where they talk about a well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industry, industries and ideologies working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage. Is this what we want? And then to turn around and say, well, gee, 70% of uh, Republicans think that Trump actually won. Is it no surprise? Is it no surprise to anyone when they see this kind of language in, the, in Time Magazine, a feature article in Time Magazine? This is a feature. It's a long article glowing about this. And you got this guy over here on, on uh, the New York Times clucking that we need to have a truth and, and reality czar. Is it any surprise that Republicans are crying foul? Is it any surprise that they feel disenfranchised? Is it any surprise that they think this was stolen from them, that something is amok, that something bad is afoot, that they've been, that they've been bamboozled? It, it's, it's, it's stunning. I'll play a clip for you real quick to close this segment before we jump into the last story of Joe Biden. Now, people say, well, he stutters or he's got a, you know, he says funny things. He, he gets confused. Maybe the case, I will argue that the truth always wants to come out. Secondly, we're in a situation where we have put together and you guys did, did it for our administration, the President Obama's administration before this. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. <laughs> I'll just leave that one there. Let's jump into this last story. Uh, this story is about something that happened in the 1980s, and it's important to talk about because I think it illustrates this deeper thing I'm trying to get at. And that is that, you know, we're talking about our society, we're talking about truth and reality and, and, um, you know, should the government get involved and how do we, how do we disabuse all these crazy right wingers, uh, of their, of their crazy ideas and theories? Because these crazy ideas and theories have led to terrible things. Uh, for example, January 6th, on January 6th, a bunch of crazed right wing domestic terrorists tried to kill Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her contemporaries in an effort to install Donald Trump as the titular uh, dictator of America. I mean, that's kind of what we're being told. And, you know, you know, tongue in cheek aside, I mean, there is this language, there's this clear acceptance across the group that this was a terrorist attack on the Capitol, that this was uh, unprecedented, that this was sacred, hallowed ground, that this whole thing was like a sacrilegious event and, it, and we've crossed a line. And once we cross that line, we can't go back. And 
and I think a lot of us are embracing that. Now, I've kind of poo-pooed some of it. I've said, look, if you like, these guys are the most unimpressive uh, coup attempt that I've ever seen. You know, whether Trump's responsible or not, that's a whole other story. I'm not, I'm not um, defending Trump on this. I think as a leader, he needs to bear some responsibility for what happened that day. He ginned this up. He had no business getting a big rally in D.C. on the 6th. What did he think was going to happen? I give him the benefit of the doubt that he was not trying to stage a coup. I give him the benefit of the doubt that he wasn't wanting these people to go and commit violence. But on the other hand, I think he was reckless. And I think, I think he was stupid. I think it was, it was a failure. I think this was a failure. And I think um, he's got to own that. Okay. But I want to talk about something that happened in the 1980s uh, that you may or may not be aware of. And I think that this kind of illustrates this bigger issue that I'm having. So on November 7th, 1983, a leftist, uh, domestic terror group bombed the U.S. Capitol building. That's right. In November of 1983, the Capitol building was bombed. Uh, there were a couple people involved. The, the group was called the May 19th. Um, they called themselves the May 19th. They had a bunch of different names. It was like the May 19th, uh, oh gosh, uh, like communist organization or something. And they had been committing terror acts from the late 70s. Uh, there was the Susan Rosenberg and Linda Sue Evans were two key people uh, that they kind of get associated with this. Uh, Sue, Linda Sue Evans had been part of the Black Liberation Army and the Weather Underground. Again, remember I mentioned Obama and Bill Ayers, Obama's uh, mentor. Well, Bill Ayers was one of the leaders of the Weather Underground. They committed things like bombings and so on. But this May 19th group, they went by different names. They, they would show up in different ways. Uh, they'd use different aliases and so on. But they were angry about America invading Granada. They were angry about um, the Palestinians and some of the things that were going on. They were anti-Israel and so on. They had been committing a bunch of domestic terror acts, like 20-plus acts of, since the late 70s, culminating in this capital bombing. And then some even happened after that. They did a lot of hijacking. They would hijack armored cars. They would bomb different places. Uh, I want to say, and I've got a few of them here highlighted. Um, so I'll, I'll just read it. This is from a Smithsonian article on this. So just so you know, this isn't made up. After their formation in 1978, M19's tactics escalated from picketing and poster making to robbing armored trucks and abetting prison breaks. In 1979, they helped spring explosive builder William Morales of Puerto Rico, nationalist group FALN, and Black Liberation Army organizer Asata Shakur, uh, also known as uh, Joanne Chesmard, from their respective prisons. Both Shakur and Morales remain on the FBI's most wanted list uh, for terrorism and are thought to live in Cuba. But eventually they turned to building explosives. And just before 11 p.m. on November 7, 1983, they called the U.S. Capitol building and said, hey, uh, you better evacuate the building. And 10 minutes later, a bomb blew it uh, detonated in the building's north wing. It didn't kill anybody, uh, but it blasted blast like a 15-foot hole. It sent bricks and plaster everywhere, blew a door into an adjoining office for, a, it was either a congressman or a senator. Uh, and it did about a million dollars worth of damage. Um, but over the course of a 20-month span in 1983 and 1984, the M-19 also bombed an FBI office, the Israeli Aircraft Industries Building, and the South African Consulate in New York. Uh, DC, DC's Fort McNair was bombed and Navy and the Navy Yard, which they hit twice. Uh, these attacks tended to follow a similar pattern, a warning to clear the area, an explosion, a pre-recorded message to media railing against the U S imperialism or the war machine under various organizational aliases. They never used the the name, uh, May 19th. So you've got this terror group that bombed the U S Capitol. Did you know about that? Had you ever heard about that? Do you remember that? Uh, I would have been in high school at the time. I would have been a junior, senior in high school, 83, 84. Uh, you know, I don't remember this, quite frankly. Um, but here you've got this, this narrative going around right now that this slob QAnon and not the QAnon shaman with his, you know, horned bearskin outfit and his shirtless uh, tattooed body, along with a bunch of fat slobs with Make America Great Again shirts, uh, and then a bunch of just people following in, like the doors open, they just think, oh, you know, it looks like a couple of folks in their 60s um, on, a, on a holiday just taking a stroll through the building. 
you got these people in there. Yeah, there were some bad actors. There were even some, you know, leftists in there trying to make it look like something was going on. There's all kinds of nonsense going on. I'm not denying that. But you've got that. There was some property damage. You've got AOC out there talking about how they're trying to kill me. You've got Tlaib on the floor crying about death threats, death threats against her. These folks are making this into a drama, but, but they actually bombed the left, the progressive left, bombed the Capitol building. They blew it up. No one's talking about that right now. And I just, again, if we're going to have this kind of truth czar, which I think is stupid, but if we're going to have these narratives about how the right is out of control and the right believes things that are destructive and the right is what's dangerous for this country, if we're going to sit and talk about what happened on the 6th but ignore the cities burning in 2020 to the ground, the Kenoshas, and, and it's like throughout the country, the Minneapolis you know, Portland, come on. If we're going to watch these places burn to the ground and call them peaceful protests, and yet we're going to call the, the, the January 6th putsch into the building, the Capitol building, by a bunch of beer belly slobs as some domestic terrorist group, and we're going to completely ignore the true history within our own living, uh, uh, within our own lifetime of the Capitol building being bombed by a leftist, progressive, socialist, communist group a terror, a true terror group, and not just a one-off. They're bombing multiple places, hijacking. They're springing uh, wanted criminals from prison. I mean, give me a break. This is where I have a problem with this. And so if you take anything away from today's discussion, <laughs> it's that I, I hope that you understand that, that what we're being fed right now, what we're being told right now, it may have elements of truth to it. Just like QAnon, there might be things in QAnon that are based on some level of truth, some fact somewhere. But it's being spun. It's being, it's being given to us as a narrative, as a story, so that we think and see and believe a certain way. They're trying to create a perspective, a worldview that is not true. The government cannot be entrusted with the truth. The left cannot be entrusted with the truth, nor can the right. You and I need to find the truth. The only way this society works, the only way that it's sustainable, the only way that you live in freedom, the only way that you're able to live life on your own terms, meaning you wake up in the morning and decide what you want your life to be about, is if you are committed to finding the truth, not committed to yourself, not committed to your own success, not even just committed to your wife and kids. That's good. You've got to be committed to the truth. You have to be willing to live heroically, meaning Live for the truth regardless of the consequences, per Ralph Waldo Emerson in his essay, Heroism. We have to be willing and hungry to find the truth, not some, not some subjective, relativistic, postmodernistic BS truth, the truth. I'm going to tell you as a Christian, I know the truth is embodied in a person, and that person is Christ you got to start there, in my opinion, in my experience, my understanding of the way the world works. But at the least, say to yourself, I live in a universe, in a world where there is truth. There is necessary and objective truth, and it's on me to find it. Stop letting other people tell you what the truth is, and let's not look to the government to set the truth. It, it's not like we've never seen this, this movie before. What happens when a government's responsible for the truth? Well, that's, what, that's when you get state-run media, thank you, China, and every other tin pot, piss-poor dictator throughout the history of mankind that murdered millions of people because they would not speak the lies that that person insisted. They would not live the lies. that They were a threat, actually, to the lies. The government doesn't need access to algorithms. It doesn't need... Uh, civil rights attorneys, and real watchdog groups. It doesn't need a truth czar. We don't need those things to live in a healthy, vibrant society. We have to insist upon the truth. And we have to fight back at every instance of that being taken from us, of giving that power to the government, because the government is not incentivized to tell us the truth. The left is not incentivized to tell us the truth. Anybody in power is not incentivized to tell the truth. It's not in their best interests. I hope this is thought provoking. You know, I, 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 I'm going to come across like I'm just railing on the left and trying to plump up Trump over here. I'm not interested in that. 
People are so wound up about what a liar Trump is. Yeah, (laughs) this person's life is a wreck. Three marriages, sex with a a porn star while his wife had a baby. It's disgusting. Now, I'm not going to defend any of that. Now, he might be repentant about it. He might, be, he might have remorse. Uh, he, he, I don't know. He hasn't confessed that publicly, so I, I don't know. I don't think that he has. I don't think he's remorseful about those things. He just wants to get away with them. That's between him and God. That's not my problem. But if you're going to tell me what a liar Trump is, and you're going to tell me how horrible the right is and all these lies that the right believes, you're going to tell me how the right desecrated the sacred, sacred ground of our capital, how they crossed a line that had never been crossed before. I'm sorry. You are not a person that is committed to the truth. Not because what you're saying to me is a lie, but the way that you're packaging it, the way that you're positioning it is manipulative. It ignores so much more information. I'm much more interested in talking to people that are happy to talk about both things and say, I think we've got a systemic issue. I think we were, something's broken on a deeper level. This isn't about getting people to agree with the accepted narrative, the popular, the democratically voted upon narrative. We should be on a quest for the truth, objective, necessary, unchanging, foundational truth. And I hope that as the days and weeks and years unfold for you and for the rest of us, that we can begin to see the importance of this because we are living in a society that is more and more at an accelerating pace, casting the truth aside and saying we need to embrace lies, deception and propaganda for this society to work. And I'm sorry, I'm not willing to participate in that. Guys, as you know, as I say every time, I love you all. Thanks for being part of this. Thanks for being my audience. Thanks for listening. I love you and I'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you.